Well, this morning we are in Ezra chapter 4. We're going to go through chapters 4, 5, and a little bit of 6. So put on your seatbelts. We are going to fly through this this morning. And again, I do ask that you, if you can, if you have a Bible open in front of you, uh, if I jump out of the passage, I'll put that up here. But I really want you to be in God's Word for yourself and see where I'm getting this from. I'm not making this stuff up. It's right out of the Word of God. And today I've titled the sermon, God's Work Under Attack. The series that we're going through, Ezra and Nehemiah, I've called God's Work or God at Work. But today we're looking at an attack. What do you think of when you think of enemies or an attack by enemies? Maybe it's a scene out of a movie, two armies standing against each other. Maybe it's like a, a Lord of the Rings where you have the armies of men and, and then the armies of the Dark Lord and, and the orcs and the men and the elves and they're all about to do battle in this big epic battle. But it's obvious the bad guys are over there, the good guys are over here, and they're going to do battle. Maybe it's something a little more realistic or something out of history with two armies coming in lines, marching toward each other, about to do battle. But they each have different uniforms. You can tell which army is which. You can know or have an opinion about who's the good guy and who's not. Maybe your picture of enemies in an attack is a football game. I won't say which teams, but you know, you have your team, but you see them. It's obvious. They walk out on the field. It's purposeful. Here's one team. Here's the other. There's no confusion, which is which. But as we walk through Ezra chapters four and five and a bit of six today, we're going to see enemies of God's people attack God's people. And two things are not as obvious as we would think. One is, who are the enemies? And the second is, what is the attack in the first place? Because in our day-to-day lives, when we are living for God, trusting in God, and we come under attack, it's not always that obvious. It's not always obvious who the enemy is. And it's not always obvious what the attack is. And I want you to consider, as we walk through this passage... I would imagine some of you will think about circumstances and maybe even specific people in your own life that you have felt turned against you and attacked you in some way. And I hope that what we talk about gives you some perspective, some hope, some comfort for that. But I don't want to stop there. I want us also to think as we go through this passage, how are we sometimes the enemies? Because I think if we're honest with ourselves and we want to truly be challenged by God's word here in this passage, we need to admit sometimes it's us that is doing the attacking on someone else. A little bit of history to review coming up to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are the last of the historical books in the Old Testament. They really wrap up the account of the history from the Old Testament. There are books after this. They go back and they tell kind of the wisdom literature or some of the prophetic literature that was going on. But this is the end of the account of God's people in the Old Testament before we skip ahead about 400 years to the New Testament. A little bit of history to catch you up. God calls Abraham, this man, and his family into a relationship. They're going to be his people, the Israelites, the Jewish people. And then they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. He saves them, brings them into the promised land. 
They're not faithful. And eventually they go into exile. And that's where we catch up with the history in Ezra and Nehemiah. These are the accounts of God bringing his people back home, back to the promised land. And in Ezra, in the first part, we, we read about this guy, Zerubbabel, who was used by God as a leader to rebuild the temple. That's what we're looking at now. Later in Ezra, we'll skip ahead about 60 years to the time of Ezra, and it's recounting him, recalling people to God's law, and then we'll go into Nehemiah, which is the account of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And as we walk through the passage today, the chronology gets a little crazy. But hopefully I'll help you to sort it out a little bit. But I want you to remember that promise that God made all the way back to Abraham. You will be my people. I will bless you. I will be with you. This was God's promise to his people. And here they are recently returned to the promised land led by God. They're a ragtag group of survivors living in a mostly demolished city trying to rebuild a temple that had been completely wiped out. And they're struggling. And as if that wasn't bad enough, they're going to be attacked now by people that are around them. So we're going to start by looking at what the attack is. In Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 24, Ezra gives the account of what's going on in Zerubbabel's day, again, Ezra probably either hasn't been born yet or he's a little kid when this has taken place. He's writing about it as history for him. But he writes about what happens. Let me read verses uh, 1 through 5 for us. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you. Let us help you build because like you, we seek your God. And have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esaradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the family of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So first of all, who are the enemies here? What's going on in this passage? As I was researching this, I I do a lot of reading, I do a lot of researching, and and I came across a, a particular resource, and it talked about these people just wanted to help And it was kind of mean of the Israelites to not include them. And I thought, wait a minute, that is not at all what was going on here. That's not the way the text lays out. The word of God, all scriptures, God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The word of God tells us when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, okay? So we know right away these people's heart are in the wrong place. These people are not on God's side. They pretend to be on God's side. They act like they're on God's side, but they are the enemies of God's people. These are people who were living in the land before the Israelites came back. We talked a little bit about that, the way the Persians and before them, the Babylonians, before them, the Assyrians. The way they worked is when they conquered a land, they would often cart off a bunch of the people into exile. And then they would bring people that lived around their empire and forcefully relocate them back into that land to repopulate it. 
to scatter the people of that land. These are people that have been put in positions, many of them of authority by the Persian government to rule over this land. But it is not their land. It is the land of the Jewish people, the Israelites. It was given to them by God. And they have come back to rebuild their city, Jerusalem. And remember, Cyrus, king of Persia, had told them to do this. He had given them approval. Now, what do these people do? Well, they offer help. In verse 2, they say, let us help you build. Like you, we seek your God. We've been worshiping your God. We're just like you. We worship the same God. Now, let me ask you this. If that's true, why didn't they rebuild the temple before this? If the worship of the Lord was so important to these people, this temple would have built, been built already. But it wasn't. It was laying in ruins. These are not true worshipers of God. And that is why, in verse 3, the Jewish leaders refuse their help and say, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. They understand that these people's heart are not, or is not in the right place. Now, if we go back in Israelite history, all the way to the time of the Exodus, God saves his people out of Egypt, brings them through the desert and into the promised land. And one of the first issues they face in the promised land is God tells them, be careful of the people that live there. They will lead you into idolatry. And do you know one of the first failures of God's people when they moved into the Holy Land? They were not careful of the people that lived there and they were sucked into idolatry. There is a constant theme in the book of Exodus and Nehemiah of this concept of a new Exodus. Did I say Exodus? Ezra. There's a theme in Ezra and Nehemiah of a new Exodus. They are returning to the land and they are learning from their predecessors and saying, we need to do this right. They messed up. Let's do it right. And so they're looking at these people who are offering to help and the warning is in their minds. Be careful. Don't get sucked in. These enemies are not truly trying to help. And we see that absolutely most clearly by what's going to happen next when they don't get their way. Look at verses four through five. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So so they come and they say, we want to help you build this temple because we're just like you. We worship the same God. So we want to be a part of this. This is great. You're rebuilding the temple. This is wonderful. And then when they don't get their way, what do they do? We're going to make it so you can't rebuild that temple that we just told you you should rebuild. Because now we have no part in it. So you can't do it. This is their heart being laid bare for all to see. When they don't get their way, they have to destroy what was happening. You see, their concern was not with the temple being rebuilt. It was with them holding on to their authority and their power and their influence. And since they didn't get that, now they have to find another way. And so they attack through discouragement. It's one of the first attacks. They discourage the people, constantly spreading doubt, causing questions and divisions. They spread discouragement among God's people. Then they attack through fear. 
But if you do this, here's this awful thing that's going to happen. Here's the trouble you're going to get into. Then they attack using power. Let's get powerful world leaders, the the, uh, um, Persian king to side with us and we'll bribe other officials. So they attack through power. They attack through any means necessary, even using sinful methods. These bribes, gossip, later on you'll see flat out lies. True worshipers of God do not use sinful means to accomplish their purpose. True worshipers of God do not use sinful methods to accomplish their purpose. Their response to not getting their way shows that they are enemies of God no matter what they say. One commentator states this, From this we see what the inhabitants of the land really wanted. They wanted influence and control. For these people, the temple is about them, not about Yahweh. Now there's a little phrase here at the end of this. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In this time period, they didn't use numbers of years, like we have 2022, 2021. We know what that means. There's a time that we said when Christ was born, and we've counted since then, and we have a number. They didn't have that. So they numbered their years by the reigns of the king. So this is a historical reference from the author telling us how long this lasted. And when you look at history, what you understand is that these attacks, constant discouragement, bribes, letters, frustrations, fear went on for 17 years. 17 years. They're trying to be faithful to the Lord and the people around them are turning them against each other. They're causing doubt and problems, and they're trying to stop the rebuilding of the temple. I want to skip all the way to verse 24, and I'll explain why in a minute, but but verse 24 picks back up what happens here, and it says, thus the work on the house in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The enemies were successful. God's people cease being obedient to God. They stop working on the temple and they go about their day-to-day lives. Now we need to go back and look at verses 6 through 23. In verses 6 through 23, Ezra steps out of the historical account of Zerubbabel's time. And he steps back into his own time period. And, and I, I'll tell you, it took me so many times to read this and read what other people said to understand what was going on because it didn't make sense. And here's one of the things that helped me the most. One of the, an author said, look, put brackets. They said they didn't have brackets in the original Hebrew or Aramaic, which part of this is written in Aramaic. He said they didn't have brackets, but they said in our English Bible, it'd be super, super helpful if right before verse six and right after verse 22, there was a bracket. Because this is Ezra jumping out of his historical account from Zerubbabel's time, jumping about 60 years closer to his own time and talking about some things that were going on when he is writing this. And let me explain to you. The Persian kings are the essential things we have to look at to understand this. Cyrus and Darius were the kings at the beginning of Ezra. 
They are the kings when Zerubbabel goes. They are the kings when the temple is rebuilt. But these letters recorded in chapter 4, verse 6, down through 23, they mention other kings, Xerxes and Artaxerxes. These are the kings in Nehemiah. These are the kings when Nehemiah goes back to rebuild the temple, or uh, rather the walls of Jerusalem. These are the kings of the time of Ezra. So we're in a different point in history. And what Ezra is doing is he has just mentioned about 60 years in the past, these enemies that caused the Jewish people from 60 years ago to stop building the temple. And now he's jumping to his time and he's saying to himself, and I think to the people he's writing to, it's just like today. People are still causing trouble. We still have enemies. They're still trying to frustrate the work of God. Are we going to listen to them like those people did? That's what he's doing. He's applying it to his own time. And there are these themes that are going on that Ezra is saying God has worked in the past And he is still at work now. So let's look at a couple excerpts from this passage. I'm not going to read all of it. But again, the people of the land send a letter to the king of Persia, in this case, Artaxerxes, or rather Xerxes. Look at verses 12 to 16. Here's the bulk of their letter. The king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing its foundations. That's not what Zerubbabel was doing. They weren't doing the walls. They were building the temple. Who was building the walls later? Nehemiah. This is about Nehemiah's time. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation, again, this is from the enemies, we are under obligation. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king. Man, if you've had little kids, this sounds really familiar. Mom, dad, because I'm trying to be obedient to you, that's why I'm pointing out what my sister did and how bad it is. Not because I'm, I want her to get in trouble. I'm just, I love you so much. (laughs) Tattletailing has gone on throughout history, okay? Since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in the trans-Euphrates. That's the area around Israel. They write this letter and it is filled with half-truths and outright lies. Yes, it is true the Jewish people at various times in their history caused trouble for other people. It is true at times they were rebellious. There is no inkling from this time period that they were doing anything rebellious whatsoever. They were obeying the edict given to them by Cyrus to do exactly what he said. And later they were obeying an edict given to them by um, Artaxerxes to go back and rebuild. They weren't doing what these people say. They're spreading lies and rumors. They also claim that if this is allowed to succeed, that there's going to be so much trouble. There's no evidence that that's the case. 
They claim that they are the ones on the side of the king of Persia. And then at the end, they tell him, if you don't do this, the sky is going to fall. Your empire is going to fall apart. They're just going above and beyond to try to get him on their side. In verses 18 through 22, King Artaxerxes sends a reply. This is the same king. When it talks about Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king, that king was Artaxerxes. It's the same king that eventually allows Nehemiah to go. And he says in this letter that he believes these enemies and he commands that all work on Jerusalem cease. In fact, it is quite possible that this letter that Ezra records is what triggers the beginning of the book of Nehemiah in the first place. Nehemiah hears what was going on in Jerusalem and he prays and he takes action. And it might be this letter right here. Now, why is Ezra doing this? Why is he jumping out of the timeline? And this was when I understood the heart of Ezra in writing this to his people. They were struggling. They were under attack. And they were trying to be faithful to God and rebuilding Jerusalem. But everything was arrayed against them. And they're struggling and they're thinking of quitting. And here's Ezra. Ezra was a scribe, which meant he would often go into the temple. In fact, I think it's not too far of a stretch to say he probably had one of the side rooms in the temple where they would allow some of the scholars and and people like scribes to work. He might have been sitting in the temple writing this book about the building of the temple, looking at what's going on in his world and saying, remember what God has done. Remember their struggle to build this temple. I know we're struggling today, but God is still at work. I got to that point. I thought, well, that'll preach. Because don't we still need that today? Isn't this why we need to pour over the history of Scripture so we can say that God who did that amazing thing with those people, He's still at work in our life and our world today. He is still at work. At the end of the chapter, then he jumps back in verse 24 to the history of Zerubbabel's time, again, about 60 or 70 years before Ezra comes on the scene, and he records that the people stopped the work What should we do about this? Sometimes we are the ones being attacked. And we need to think about our faith in that moment. How our faith, or or how our response rather, shows our faith and our trust in God. And we're going to look at that. That's where Ezra goes in the next chapter. We're going to look at that. But it struck me as well that sometimes we are the ones who don't get our way. And when we don't get our way, how do we respond It's easy to think that the enemies are always somewhere out there and to fail to look in the mirror and in our own hearts and say, you know, sometimes the enemy is in here. I want to read to you a rather lengthy quote from an author named James James Hamilton. And I found this very helpful and very challenging, and maybe you will too. He writes, I wonder whether you see a little bit of yourself in the attitude of these inhabitants of the land. Is what is happening in your church about God or about you? When you don't get to do what you want to do, do you support the ministry anyway? Or do you do things that discourage and frustrate the ministry? 
Do you look at the ministry as a way to become famous and influential or as an opportunity to serve God and his people? Is the opportunity to sing before God's people about you and your voice or is it about helping people worship? Is the opportunity to teach a class for everyone to see how intelligent and eloquent you are or is it an opportunity to serve God's people by giving them God's word? Is a ministry position at church about you being exalted over others, giving you a title that doesn't really reflect your character, or is it simply a recognition of the ways that you are already caring for the people? Do you know how you can tell which it is for you? Check your heart when someone else gets a great opportunity. Do you envy opportunities given to others or do you rejoice with them? When someone else gets invited to teach, to join the staff of a church, to sing a solo, to play the guitar, to lead a Sunday school class, to contribute a chapter to a book, to write a book, or whatever it is, what does your heart do? Does your heart say, why didn't they ask me to do that? I could do it better than him. Or does your heart say, praise God, that's going to be done. It needs to be done. Oh, Lord, help this person to do it in a way that will bless us. Oh, Lord, bless this person so that he will help me and others see more of you, want more of you, and love you and others more because of the way he does this. If you envy, discourage, and frustrate, doesn't that indicate that you're more interested in advancing yourself than in seeing the church built up? Now, that's being applied specifically to God's work through a local church. But I think we could apply it to God's work in our homes, families, our places of work. Check your heart when you're not the one that gets the position. Is your focus on the work of God being accomplished or your involvement on the work or in the work of God? It's a very challenging concept. We've seen the attack from the enemies. We've seen how the people respond and give in and fail to be faithful to their Lord. And now we're going to see how they respond in faith. Look at verses 1 and 2 of the next chapter, chapter 5. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, son of Jozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets were with them, supporting them. They stopped working on the temple because they were afraid. In these two verses, they start, they restart working on the temple. What made the difference? Here's the key to applying this passage. What made the difference? The difference was the word of God. In this case, coming to them through two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Now, ladies, on Wednesday night, some of you are going through the book of Haggai. This is it. Here it is right here. They were contemporaries of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And their ministry, what was written by Haggai in just two brief chapters, and Zechariah was much more long-winded. But, but what was written by these two guys grabbed hold of the hearts of people. And it wasn't just these two guys and their opinions. It was the word of the Lord through them to God's people. In fact, I want to read for you verses 1 through 9 of Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. You should recognize some of these names now. 
the high priest, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Okay, so that's them ceasing the work on the temple. No, yeah, not the right time. God's closed that door. It's just not the right time. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but have never enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. They were focusing on their own needs and their own wants. Oh, sure, it started with an attack and giving into that, but now it's transitioned into just outright selfishness. It's easier for us to just do our own thing. It's still easier for us to do our own thing and to ignore our obedience to the Lord God Almighty. These people have allowed the attacks of the enemies to change and warp their priorities. And in that way, the enemies have won again. It's a double win. The work was stopped and the mindset of God's people has been changed. Friends, at times that we feel under attack, at times that we feel the culture is doing things we don't want, we must be careful to allow our mindset to be altered, shaken, shifted by the word of God, not by the culture. We need to go back to the word of God. And so God's word through Haggai and Zechariah changed things. And the people respond in faith. In Ezra chapter 5 verse 2, it says again, uh, they set out to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. What does it say about the enemies? Had they gone away? Did they just walk away? Oh, they've started again. What are we to do? No, they're still there. The enemies are still there. They're still attacking. What has changed is that God has spoken and God's people have said, we will trust in our Lord more than we fear these people. We will work and we will understand that God is at work. Remember what Ezra is doing here. He's applying this situation to his present day. Friends, some of you are facing attacks in your own life. You need to apply this situation to your present day. It's the same God. He's doing the same work. He is still in control. Look at how they respond in faith and ask yourself, will we respond in faith as well? The rest of this passage records God's sovereign work. I called this series God at Work. And, and I said in the introductory sermon that uh, that might seem strange because it's a record of the work of Zerubbabel, the record of the work of Ezra, the record of the work of Nehemiah. There's actually not a ton of mention of God in these books. And yet, you get these glimpses, and this is a big one. 
they understood that they were rebuilding this temple because God had told them to do it. They were being faithful to him. And God is still sovereign, and so they are trusting him, and they are continuing to be obedient. Now, the attacks resume. And if we pick it up in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 5, it says, At that time, Tatanai, governor of trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Bozani, and their associates, these are some of these enemies, went to them and asked, Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? What's the answer to that question? God, through Haggai and Zechariah, God told them, get to work. They also asked, what are the names of those who, const- who are constructing this building? Why do they want to know that? Because they want to get those people in trouble. They want to send a letter to the emperor and get these people in big trouble. They also asked, what are the names of those who are constructing this building? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius, and his written reply received. So they send another letter. They make another attack. But God is watching over his people. And even in the midst of this attack, and I wonder what this was like, I don't know how long it took for the letter to go and a response to come back, but imagine the Jewish leaders. What's going to happen? Last time a letter went, they got shut down. What's going to happen? What's going to happen here? But what did they do? They kept on trusting God. They kept joining God in his work. And so we see the letter that they send. And in this letter, it's interesting because they include a letter from the Jewish leaders as well. And I want to read that to you in verses 6 through 17. Um, we have the, the beginnings of the letter they sent. This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, governor, uh, and they go on and list the rest of them. Verse 8, the king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing timbers in the walls. The work is being carried out with with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We questioned the elders and asked them, who authorized you to rebuild the temple and to finish it? We also asked them their names so that we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. This is the answer they gave us. Listen to what the Jewish people said. To the king of Persia, the most powerful man in the world at this time, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. That's a good start. They don't start by saying, oh, most wonderful Persian king, we are your loyal subjects. They say, no, 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 we have a higher authority. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that had a great king of Israel, or one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because of our Because our ancestors angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. And they go on to tell a little bit more of the history. But I love what they're doing. They are declaring their trust in the God who has worked in the past. They are declaring that they are the Lord's people, no matter what the worldly leaders say. And they are asking the king, at the end of this letter, they ask the king to make a search of their records to see if he finds that original decree of Cyrus. And in the response of Darius in chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, that's exactly what happens. He finds the original letter going way back when Cyrus said for them to go and to rebuild 
And so he writes a letter back to these enemies. Look at verse 7 of chapter 6. This is, his, this is his command to these leaders in this area that were the enemies of God's people. Do not interfere with the work of this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild the house of God on its site. So number one, stop messing with them. Number two, moreover, I hereby decree that what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in their construction of this house of God, their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven and wheat, salt, wine, olive oil as requested by the priests in Jerusalem must be given them daily without fail so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. So number one, stop messing with them. Number two, you need to start paying out of your own pocket for this project that you're trying to shut down. Talk about a slap in the face. Now, understand the way this worked. These leaders, these secular leaders, I think we could call them, they were responsible to collect taxes and send them to the Persian king. Make no mistake, those taxes, that income, will still be paid to the Persian king without fail. This money is going to come out of their pockets. They were allowed to keep some of the taxes as their income. What's being said very clearly is it's out of that that you need to pay these expenses. Aren't you glad you sent the letter? But he's not done yet. Verses 11 and 12. Furthermore, I decree if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Think of the attacks. They were threatening them. What happens? Well, now they're the ones being threatened, not by God's people, by the king. That God is using this pagan, evil king. Again, I said this early on. This is not a good guy. His heart's not in the right place. He's not a true worshiper of God. He's a complete pagan, but God is using him to accomplish what God wants to take place. This is the sovereign work of God. And then it says, because of the decree the King Darius had sent, these rulers, they carried out with diligence, so the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai and the prophet, and, or Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, descendant of Iddo. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month, Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. They did it. Actually, God did it. They were powerless. They were afraid. They showed their fear by stopping. And God stepped up and he moved the hands of a foreign pagan emperor. He used even their enemies to accomplish what he had in mind because God was at work. Think for a second. What caused King Darius to make sure that the work of God was paid for? What brought that about? 
It was the attack of the enemies. God used the attack on his people to accomplish his plan. Let that just marinate for a second. And in those times that we say, God, where are you? What are you doing? I think back to Psalm 22 that we read earlier, and it's just full with, what are you doing? Everything's falling apart. I can see my bones. I'm, I'm falling apart. Where are you? And all this gets applied to Christ, and it's like God saying, I'm right here. And I'm accomplishing my plan and my purpose, even through the attacks of enemies. Sometimes we are under attack. You're living for your faith and people make fun of you. They turn people against you. People have lost jobs. You lose family members, loved ones, friends, because they attack you. Remember that God is still at work. And he might even be using that attack to carry out his purposes. Do you have a faith in a big enough God to trust and to hold on no matter what he does? Sometimes we are the ones who are doing the attacks. We want things our way and in our timing. And we're willing to roll over and push aside anybody who gets in our way. And we need to stop and say, do I believe in a big God who is accomplishing his plan? And am I trusting in that? Or am I forcing other people to do what I want? At all times, in every situation, God is at work. Even in attacks. This reminds me of one other attack in scripture. Satan wanted to undermine God's plan. And he arranged so that God's son would be killed on a Roman cross. This is the best attack he could come up with on God's plans and his purposes. And yet we open scripture and we realize this wasn't Satan at all. It was God's powerful purpose at work throughout all of history. So Satan, God's enemy, is even used by God to accomplish his plan to send his son to die in your place and my place on the cross. Because that's God at work. And when we trust in Jesus and we are saved from our sins, we are saying, God, I will trust your work. I will lay down my plans and my purposes and I will trust that you are at work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a hard thing to trust in your work. Oh, there are times it's pleasant and wonderful and beautiful. But there are times that it's hard, and agonizing and difficult. There are times it's even painful. There are times we look to you and we question what you're doing and why you're doing it that way. And we think why we would do it differently. And yet, God, I pray, as we read through these chapters in Ezra, that we would know you are the same God who worked then. You are the same God at work today in our lives and in our situations. And may we trust in you, Father. And as we look to the cross and we see the greatest example of you working even through those who were your enemies, May we truly trust you through your son, Jesus Christ, and accept the salvation freely given through him. In whose name we pray, amen.